This is Jay Plunky Branch from Plunky and Oneness of Juju, and you're listening to Full Service Radio. from the ancient spirits. Feel the spirit, a unifying force. Yeah, Come on, move with the spirit. Stand up, clap your hands. Dude with the rhythm. Get down, get off. What I envisioned when I said African rhythms make you clap your hands. African rhythms make you dance. I was envisioning groups of people clapping their hands and having a good time. And I wanted the lyrics to simply say that while you're having this good time in this R&B setting, it's African. That these are African rhythms that have been passed down to us that allow us to have this. So while I'm trying to be the most commercial record I can possibly think up, I'm also being true to this philosophy that I have. The words say it all. I'm James Plunky Branch from Richmond, Virginia, but I'm in Washington, D.C. enough for people to think I'm a D.C. person. I'm a saxophonist with the group Oneness of Juju. Before that, was the group was called Juju, and now it's called Plunky and Oneness. I'd like to think of myself as a musician, a producer, a promoter, a writer, and filmmaker. My first love was chemistry. I found my father's chemistry book when I was nine years old. It was his college chemistry book. I started reading it and thought, made me special. I thought it made me smart, being able to do chemical formulas. The first day I ran down to my mother and said, oh, what? Do you, I bet you don't know what H2O is, but of course they did. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, which was a very segregated town, and music was a very important part of my existence. Um, the radio and church, mostly R&B, a little bit of jazz, but mostly R&B and gospel was my music of uh, recreational listening. In school, we studied classical music, uh, European classical music, and I was relatively proficient as a musician. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> um, I was first clair- first chair clarinet in the in the in the band and the orchestra. I was part of the all city band. Um, in high school, I played oboe, bassoon, timpani, clarinet and did not play saxophone. Um, I didn't start playing saxophone until I went to Columbia University in New York where I started a band. The band was called the Soul Syndicate. Uh, We were known as 14 Pieces of Driving Soul, and primarily we played James Brown on the one hand and The Temptations in Motown on the other. I moved west for political reasons. I moved west because my college career came to an abrupt end. I moved west because in 1968, the students at Columbia took over the campus and held the campus under kind of a siege for about a week. And I was into left-wing politics and left New York to reside in California because it was much more a left-wing positive place. I was hunted by the FBI for three years, a month and five days. But during that time, I lived in California under an assumed name, just freelancing, playing soul music and jazz music. And I met a man named Indico Aba. Indico was a Zulu from South Africa who, after a time, lived here in Washington, D.C. for a while. Back then, he was in exile. Indico gave all of our 
members of our group, South African names. I was called Plunky Inkabinde. Inkabinde is a South African name translated as tall bull. And I think he gave me that name because I was tall and had a lot of girlfriends. I learned from him. I learned that music could be more than a pastime, that black music could be a source of cultural pride. But beyond that, black music could be a political force. It could be an economic generator. In other words, I learned that in the African philosophy and in African aesthetics, we judge music by its usefulness, by its function, by how it serves the community. And in addition to that, I learned that there was a very distinct relationship in terms of the tonality and the rhythms of jazz to African music. And that relationship is one that I wanted to explore and have been exploring for the next 45 years. Pharaoh Sanders' music and Ornette Coleman's music and Rasan Roland Kirk's music could be interpreted as being African. It was polyrhythmic, it was very emotional, and it was uh, improvisational. And those are three characteristics that I ascribed to just about all the African, traditional African musics that I encountered. After leaving Indico's group, I formed a group called Juju. Juju was three members of Indico's group and three members from the San Francisco Bay Area. Juju primarily centered on African percussion, African, Afro-Cuban, Afro-Brazilian percussion, vibraphone, electric piano, and my wild screaming saxophone. We, we eventually made a record. We rehearsed every day about four hours a day, and our rehearsals took the format of a, of a ritual, of a spiritual, energetic ritual. I decided to produce a recording of the group, which we did. It was in the same format as our rehearsals. It was one take. Once that record was done, I heard about and knew about uh, a label called Strata East in New York City. We determined, after much debate, after spirited debate, to change the nature of the group Juju from this African avant-garde group to one that would include more R&B elements. We added a trap drummer. Before that, Juju just had timbales and conga drums, like a traditional Afro-Cuban group. We added a guitar, which gave us a, the capability of being even more bluesy and rhythmic at the same time. And perhaps most importantly, we added a female vocalist. The truth, have a word with a creator. Softer music and softer tones is much more inviting. I know I'm saying the obvious. But for six guys who had trained themselves playing full out, full energy for four hours at a time, this was kind of a revelation for us. We decided to change the name of the group from Juju to Oneness of Juju. 73, we released a message from Mozambique on Strata East. In 1975, Strata East ran into its own issues of, just like Oneness of Juju had to decide what we were going to do musically, where we were going to expand or stay in one place. Strata East had a similar controversy within its midst. 
Strata East was mostly older jazz players, but they had a cadre of younger players, which was M. Toomey, Gil Scott Heron, and Juju. We were all younger, just chronologically speaking. Gil Scott's album was a little bit more R&B-ish and more spoken words, more lyrics than anything else on the label at the time. Well, a funny thing happened with Bill Scott's album on Strata East. He got what amounted to a hit record, a single called The Bottle. You see that black boy over there running scared, his old man in a bottle. He done quit his nine to five, he drank full time, and now he's living in a bottle. Gil Scott Heron's The Bottle put Jimmy Gray on the map. And then eventually soured the younger players on the label because at Strata used to have to have this debate. Do we even want to go in this direction? Do we even want to have R&B-ish kind of records polluting what we thought we were doing? And eventually they decided they did not want to go in that path. They did not want to do R&B sounding records. I decided I wouldn't do my next record on Strata East. Remember, I'm in Richmond now. I'm not in New York. I'm not playing it on at Coleman's and with Sun Ra and recording with Farrah Sanders. I'm in Richmond now trying to live in an R&B world. My next record, which would be called African Rhythms, really wouldn't fit into the philosophy of Strata East. And so Jimmy Gray and I decided we release it ourselves. And Jimmy said, we'll call it Black Fire. I already have a magazine called Black Fire, and this will be our first release on Black Fire. And we released African Rhythms and sort of the rest is history. recorded African rhythms, doing the rhythm in a hip-hop way, but basically copying the original. The same bass line and the same opening monologue, which I did not write out, I just improvised. And now I could, I've said it probably a thousand times when I do that song, these are African rhythms passed down to us from the ancient spirits. When I discovered this, I said, wow, somebody sampled my record without permission. But it turned out it didn't sample it, they had just copied it, which is entirely legal. But they owed me some, what they call mechanical royalties. At the time, it was seven cents a copy. But I went back and forth with them, and here's what I say. A big smile is on my face. You can't see me in radio land. But after a couple of go-rounds with them, and this is what I said to myself. I said, these are just some young black guys out of Detroit. I'm not even going to bother. It probably won't amount to much anyway. Well, who knew that Jay Diller would become legendary? I didn't know that Jay Diller would become legendary. Jay Diller, redoing the record, helped other people discover the record. I have to say that we were a part of the influence for the creation of what we call go-go music. I can't claim that it was me or my group only, but we played these shows with groups like Gil Scott Heron, and we did a couple of things. We had all this percussion, and we also would play our sets nonstop. We would segue the songs from song to song. And 
other groups picked up on this, that music that would become go-go, which, by the way, is my favorite music even today, would include this Africanness, this nonstop, this long ritual kind of way of approaching the music, not taking it in three, three or four minute chunks, but long, mesmerizing, hypnotic segues of music to influence a whole crowd of people. In traditional African culture, music was a part of everything. The drums were a part of everything. And the idea of many African rituals was that you'd play and play and play long enough until the spirit came down on somebody or some groups of somebody. And usually that took time. In scientific terms, in psychological terms, it's a matter of doing something long enough that you get what we call a second wind. Well, a second wind is a kind of another set of chemicals. Everything is chemistry. Remember, I started out at nine years old. I'm a chemist. So everything to me is rooted in chemistry. And our body is mainly made up of chemicals. And you get a second wind. It's like an amphetamine kind of substance. Well, there are all kinds of dopamine and other kinds of chemicals that make us feel certain ways. And some of those you can't get to quickly. Some of those take a minute to generate themselves. And so that's kind of a scientific approach, a non-spiritual approach to how African music affects people. But this concept of an hour-long go-go set is African to me, is African in its orientation. One of the reasons I'm probably here is because the first five albums on Blackfire, five of the early albums on Blackfire have been reissued by a company called Vinyl Me Please. And they have repackaged five of these albums and done a masterful job just in terms of the presentation, just in terms of the album jackets, in terms of the liner notes. But even more importantly, in terms of the audio. In the 1990s, when Jimmy and I got back together, and say, we're going to re-release some of these Blackfire things that came out earlier and some of the things that had never been released. There was a new technology available then. It was digital technology. And we thought that DAT tapes, these little teeny cassette tapes, we said, well, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to archive our entire catalog. We're going to put them on DATs. We thought we were doing something great. Turns out DAT tapes don't sound better than the two-inch tapes. They don't last longer than, than the acetate. The people at Vinyl Me Please and Now and Again Records have done is they had me go back to the actual tapes, the original two-inch tapes and in some instances the half-inch master tapes. Got them out of my garage. I'm admitting that's where they were stored for 45 years. But the tapes held up great. We sent the tapes to Los Angeles, did the master tapes, and mastered them direct from the tape to vinyl. And the records sound fabulous. So... My whole story of from 1968, 69, moving to California, going to New York, back to New York for several years, back to Richmond, till now, through hip-hop samplers, now we have those original recordings being reissued and are available on Vine. refer to myself as sort of like a black forest gump. I keep on ending up in these places that I didn't really plan to. I mean, I didn't plan to meet Ornette Coleman. I mean, I didn't plan to meet Indico. I've been to Africa six times. 
I went to Cuba twice and did a and did a movie. I did a documentary on Afro-Cuban music. Almost none of what I tell you as the high points of my life were things that I scoped out and planned to say, oh, I'm going to college and I'm going to go do this and I'm going to meet this person. So I would say that I have those kind of moments all the time, but now I seek them out. Black. 